I'm Michelle Sims, and this is the Beauty in the Mess, a community where people who crave a shift in mindset, personal growth, and connection to like-minded people come together to start rewriting their stories. Through engaging, honest, and insightful conversations, the show will help you embrace the mess to recognize the meanings and the lessons it holds and discover its hidden treasures to help you start making a mindset shift. Let's listen, learn, and reclaim who we were meant to be. Hi, friend. Welcome to the Beauty in the Mess. For this episode, I'm excited to welcome Janet Barrett to the show. Janet grew up not being able to release her childhood trauma and let it go, and she eventually broke from the weight of it all. She learned that you need to learn how to deal with it, and now she has a passion to help others learn how to deal with things, and she wants to help others become resilient, to recover more quickly, and she also wants to change how the world approaches mental health care. Hi, I'm Michelle Sims, your host. I'm just a regular person who, along with my family, have had our share of messes that we too have had to overcome. Along the way, I got curious as to how others get through their messes and even triumph over them. Maybe there's a better way, a faster way. Maybe we can accelerate our journeys by learning from someone else. And that started my pursuit. I think we can all learn from each other through the sharing of our experiences, lessons, and knowledge. So join me for episode 47 of The Beauty in the Mess, called Becoming Resilient with Janet Barrett. Janet is a proactive mental health advocate, educator, and writer. Her passion is to help others learn how to deal with their own stuff and to change the way the world approaches mental health care. Janet founded Cerebral Health, a company dedicated to proactive mental health education and strategy, and she wrote the book Stop the Break to share her approach. Her goal is to slay the stigma around mental health and how we treat it and how we identify it, and also to help others learn how to thrive and know that they are not alone. When she is not stigma slaying, you can find Janet at her home near Boston with her four kids and a dog, finding balance and joy in life. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's conversation. Well, hi, Janet. Welcome to the Beauty and the Mess. I'm so glad to have you with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Now, I know you're a successful speaker, author, and a mental health advocate, but before we start discussing all that, I was wondering if you could tell us some of your backstory, like what's led you to become the person you are today? Oh, I would be happy to. Thank you. So I guess a few years ago, I found myself in what I think of as the second phase of my adult life. The first phase is what I would say probably almost everybody does, which is they finish whatever education they're doing and they go get their first real job. And my first real job was in corporate America. And I was a management consultant and I lived and worked literally all over the world. And my specialty was helping retailers and apparel companies figure out how much product they should sell. And it was called skew optimization. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I would end up there. It is not something that a little girl dreams of becoming a skew optimization expert, but that is what I became. And I actually really enjoyed it. But the part that I enjoyed the most was helping people make change successfully. Because in essence, what I would do is I would go in and help a company figure out how do you change what you do for a better outcome? And for the company, the better outcome was always financial. But for the individual, I needed to help them figure out what's the better outcome for you because asking somebody to make change They don't want to make the change unless they understand why it's beneficial for them. So I spent most of my career actually figuring out how do you help people make this change in a way that is positive for them and not negative. And then in my 30s, I ended up meeting somebody and we got married. And then we had four kids in three years and three months. Wow. And that is what propelled me into that second phase that I mentioned earlier, which was being a stay-at-home mom. And I loved it. I took the 60, 70, 80 hours a week that I focused on my corporate career, 
And I put it and focused it on my kids and my community. And I got very involved in not only my kids' lives, but very involved in the community and some nonprofits. And I volunteered a lot. I served on several boards. And I did similar things to what I did in the corporate world, just now in the nonprofit world. And then one day, I found out that my husband was having an affair and he wanted a divorce. And that is what propelled me into the third phase of my adult life, which is becoming that proactive mental health advocate. Because when I found that out, I was crushed. I could not eat. I couldn't sleep. I am almost five foot six and I was under a hundred pounds. Wow. It literally hurt to try and sit. I am a very average size person. That is a very abnormal weight for me. And I couldn't understand why was I struggling so much because I'm guessing you and probably all of your listeners know somebody that has been in that situation of divorce and infidelity. It's very common, right? I mean, we know. Did you have no clue that anything was wrong? I mean, you thought everything was okay when this. No, I mean, the marriage definitely was struggling. Okay. We had issues. I wanted to try and work on them. And he did not. And that's basically where we were. And his way out was to choose that path. And unfortunately for me, it was a very devastating thing because the trust that I had placed in the relationship was completely shattered. Wow. And I needed to figure out how to get out of that hole because I couldn't live in that hole any longer for my kids, for myself, for anybody. Right. And I couldn't understand, like, why couldn't I get out? I had done all of these things, corporate career, lived overseas, had four kids, done all of these wonderful things. And so I started what I normally do, which is I needed to research and say, what is it that I'm missing? Because if all these other people can do it and they can figure it out, clearly I missed some part of the memo. And so I looked up how to become resilient and started with Google searches. How do you recover after a divorce? How do you trust after infidelity? How do you tell your mom you're getting a divorce at 50? How do you parent kids as a single mom? All of these things I started looking at. And when I started looking into the resilience side of it, I realized that there's a whole bunch of things that everyone recommends for how you can become resilient and improve your mental health. And they're very standard in my particular situation, because I was in crisis, not being able to eat or sleep. The first thing was to go see a medical professional. And so I did, I went to my doctor and he gave me some prescriptions to help me eat and to help me sleep. And they helped but it just, it wasn't enough. I still felt broken inside. And so I did therapy, which I had been doing. I just increased the amount of therapy because I'm sure everybody has heard all of the ads for, if you are having a tough time, get a therapist. So I talked to my therapist and again, it helped. It just wasn't quite enough. And I did yoga. I've been doing yoga for over 30 years. I meditated. I did more meditation. I went outside. I did walks. I got my vitamin D from the sun. I got a dog. I had lunch with friends. I did everything that if you go out and Google, they say, this is what you need to do in order to be resilient and to recover from this and to improve your mental health. And yet for me, I still wasn't improving the way that I wanted to improve. It all helped a little bit. It just wasn't enough. And it wasn't until I came across some research by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And his research was around PTSD and military veterans. And he was looking into what can we do to help these people recover? Because they have such a strong reaction to any trigger 
that they can't really function successfully in society. And the people he was working with, he happens to be based in the Boston area, he worked with the VA hospitals in the Boston area. So these were individuals that actually were hospitalized for their mental health primarily, so very severe. And what he actually found was that in order for these individuals to move past the trauma that had been inflicted on them, that they had to reconnect their mind and their body. And the reason why they needed to do that is because when they were in that really stressful situation of war, they had to suppress their natural physical reaction to gunfire and bombing and shelling and all of these crazy things, because if they didn't keep it together and they flipped out and like ran and threw their arms in the air, they'd probably die and other people might die. Right. And so it was keeping that physical reaction actually contained in their body that it started to split the two. And so their bodies had trapped so much in there that they couldn't handle any other stress coming at them. And I started to wonder, does that actually work for people that maybe don't have PTSD? Sure enough, it does. And now they've actually created a whole bunch of therapeutic things around that. There's tapping, there's EMDR, there's dance therapy. It's all of these things where you're trying to connect your emotions with your physical body. Right. And it's to overcome what we learned as children, where we were told, if you got mad when you were a kid, I don't know about you, but if I stomped my feet and slammed my door, I got in trouble. Right. I had a conversation with one woman one time about this exact thing. And I said, I basically, I'd be like, no, Janet, we get what we get and we don't get upset. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I got sent to my room. And I was told until you're ready to be nice, you cannot come out. And so we learn, be nice, don't have that natural physical reaction and you'll be accepted. And that's what I had been doing for so long. I had suppressed all of those emotions. And even though I talked about it with my therapist, I wasn't really leaving them or letting them leave my body. I was keeping them trapped inside. And so that's what propelled me into where I am now. I ended up going back to school, getting my master's in organizational psychology and understanding that we don't need to let people get to the point that I got or that the PTSD victims from the military veterans or anyone else get to the point of having to break in order to get help. Right. We can actually be much more proactive in it and we can start to teach people how do you keep that mind-body connection without freaking out in front of everyone. So it's not necessarily that you want kids to throw fits and throw things around. You want them to know that's a natural physical reaction. You need to have that and kind of let that out and then re-engage in this. And so now I go around and talk about how do we help people understand how to actually have that conversation with themselves and with their body? I think it's interesting also that I think typically most of us would think if you need to reconnect or stay connected, you would do the meditation, the yoga, the being in nature. I mean, those are all the things I hear all the time and those didn't work. So I I thought that was fascinating. No, and it was because I had suppressed that so much that I wasn't, if you are using the whole process, right? You can use those things as part of that connection, but I had a lot of childhood trauma that I had suppressed. And because of that, I never, ever processed that through my body. Right. I did things that were more recent would be handled as I was meditating and things like that, but I was never letting go of old trauma. And that's the part that I try to get people to understand, like, there's a lot of stuff that most people suppress from a long time ago, exactly, or even little things that happen in daily life. 
I think about road range. Right. So you're driving, you get mad at the person who cut you off or is going really slow or doesn't use their blinker or whatever it is. And you can't ram their car or whatever. It's not safe for them. It's not safe for you. Screaming at them does not do anything because again, that's still just verbal. So I tell people when you get to your parking space, put your car in park, right? take a minute, think about how mad that made you, and then do this like physical body shake, like, and let it out with a big sigh. And if you do it, you'll actually feel your stress hormones release out of your body and you'll feel the endorphins come in and help you engage in the rest of your day or the rest of whatever you're going into in a much healthier mindset. So it's little things like that, that you don't necessarily need to go to a yoga class or do meditation or even therapy that you can kind of do throughout your day when you have those little things. That way they don't build up and end up kind of setting you off at a later date. Right. And do you think it's more prevalent than we want to realize? Because I'm thinking of like work scenarios and you feel like you have to suppress your true feelings because obviously you're in a work setting and you know what I mean? There would be consequences, even if it's not like getting in trouble with the boss, but there would be social consequences, put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is incredibly prevalent. And when I talk I feel like there is a max amount that anybody can handle. Exactly. And what happens is that when you hit that max amount, you have to let it out. And for parents, especially, it usually comes out at your kids. You have maxed out on that day of things you can handle. And so like one that I have is people not picking up their shoes. And I'm like, just pick up your shoe. And like, I will yell about picking. I'm not yelling about the fact that the shoes are there. I'm yelling because I couldn't take one more thing. Right. And so a lot of those things, when you hear about people exploding at the people they love, it's because they know they're going to forgive me for my actions, but it's not because you're mad at them. It's because there's been so much buildup over the day or over whatever period of time that you do have to, at some point in time, release that valve, release that pressure cooker and let it out. And that's where you feel safe enough to do it. Right. And so I want people to say, okay, how can you find other safe times and safe spaces that aren't yelling at your loved ones that are doing that, but doing it in some other space, like sitting in your car and letting out the road rage that you have. Or if you had a bad day at work, take a couple of minutes before you go into your house to release whatever those emotions are. Maybe it's crying, maybe it's anger, maybe it's frustration, but figure out a time and a place to let that out before you engage in the rest of your life. Do you feel, because I also believe that some people who manage to contain it, they can control it better than others but it manifests in a physical illness, maybe. I mean, it would come out a different way. Yeah, it does. I, oh, I a hundred percent believe that. And I am actually a really good example of that over the years. So I would have these very random illnesses and I had no idea why until I went through this last break And I looked back at my life and it was when I was having extraordinarily stressful periods of time that my body was trying to get me to do something about it. And I was so good at suppressing and ignoring the emotional side that I'm like, well, what is going on with my body? The example I get, I was sexually abused as a child. Oh, wow. And in second grade, I had ulcers. Oh, wow. What second grader has ulcers? They, they don't. Yeah. That's unreal. Really? Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, again, I could go time and time through my life of various periods of time that I had stress built up and my body was screaming at me to do something. And I never put that together until 
I finally really completely broke. And my body's like, we're not even going to let you eat or sleep until you figure this out. Right. And once I did, then my body was like, oh, guess what? We can eat again. And I don't even have to take medication for that. I like, I'm off of all of the medications. Wow. I don't have, I still do yoga and meditation. I just personally love it. I think it's great. I think therapy is great, but my main way of dealing with it is finding those safe spaces and safe times to let out what I think of as the negative emotions so that they don't get bottled up inside me. And since I've done this, which is almost four years now, I've not had any of those mysterious illnesses. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So do you believe in grounding? Because I know like we're told that we can build up a negative charge and that's, I, I believe in God and I, and that's God's way. If you walk out on the earth with bare feet, that you discharge that negative charge in your body. I do, but I think you have to do it mindfully. Right. So I don't, I think that it happens One, I'm a barefoot person all the time. If I possibly can be, I do not wear shoes. That's good. Because I feel like I love that connection with the earth. But in order for me to release anything, it has to be mindful. So the earth doesn't take it unless I give it to the earth. So do you kind of visualize it leaving your body? I do. I do. And the same thing I have, like, if you believe in the energy around you, or if you believe in a spiritual being and they will take that negative for you, you still have to do it in a mindful way. That being or spirit or whatever it is that you, you believe in my belief system, uh, they're not just going to take it without you acknowledging it. Right. So it's more, it's again, it's being proactive about it rather than passive in that process. Yeah, I can see that totally. It's kind of like a, allowing or giving permission for that to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So that that's kind of a, a good segue, I suppose, to to talk about how you feel about presenteeism. What What is that, first of all, for the listener? And what are your thoughts? So presenteeism is when you go to work and you are physically there, but you're not really mentally engaged. So you're not really contributing at the level that you should. And it is one of the most dramatic shifts because it's always been a problem. But when we had COVID and we switched to a, a more virtual world, right? so we're available all the time because all you had to do was walk into whatever your office situation was at home. It really dramatically increased the amount of presenteeism seen in the corporate world and actually in any part of the world. In fact, now estimates say that the cost of that to business is greater than the cost of absenteeism. Wow. So absenteeism, you're not at work because you are physically not able to be there. Presenteeism, you're there, but you really shouldn't be because mentally you're not checked in and it's costing companies more money than absenteeism. So I know it is a huge problem. And I know one of the reasons why is because we have had to take on so much additional stress over the last few years with all of the global situation, in addition to all of the personal stress that we already had in our lives, right. which everyone has, and we haven't been able to just release that. And so it's increasing our inability to engage in our work because it's taking up that mind share of so many things going on, so much weight is on our back that we can't skip work, but we're not really dialing in when we're there. This this may be an odd question, but do you feel like the culture of a business can create that as well? Because I know like where I work, it's a very male oriented, women aren't valued in my opinion. And so you kind of don't participate as much as you want to, or, or you could because you feel like it's not valued anyway. You're just dismissed. So it's like, okay, what did this guy have to say? I mean, can the culture of a business do that 
So first, I'm sorry that happens to be the culture because that I've been in those cultures and it is a frustrating and demoralizing situation to be in. It is. And second, to answer your question, absolutely. It can, like the culture of the company will absolutely influence it. I was just reading a research article that oddly would be seen as the flip of your company in a way. They call them trendy companies. And what a trendy company is a company that gives lip service to doing everything correct for everyone, that mental health is important and take the time that you need and all of those things, but it's only in word, not in deed. And so people at those companies are having an even harder time because their company is saying, oh yeah, we find it valuable and you need to do something for yourself. But if you actually do it, you're going to end up being in trouble. Oh, wow. And so the people that need it, it's making it even more exacerbated. And then in the situation that you're in, where you don't even feel valued or comfortable, like what is, why should I try? Why should I even care? Because at this point, I know they're not going to listen to me. I know they're not going to do it. So yeah, I'm going to show up. I'm going to get my paycheck and it's not going to be any different. Right. And I feel like I work hard at my job. I really do. And I value my job. Which is amazing. I I feel like I have much more to give than I'm allowed to give. Does that make sense? I mean, I do my job. I do it well, but I feel like I could go way beyond that. But yeah, there's not even an opportunity to do that. Yeah. And if it's not, then, oh my gosh, that is so frustrating. I mean, to live in that every day to be like, I have more, I have more value than what they're allowing me to give. That would be very frustrating. It is (laughs) to me. It is. (laughs) I haven't figured out how to change it yet. You try to change the culture, but it's just ingrained and it's very tough to change it. It is. It's even when companies want to change their culture, it is incredibly challenging to do so. I've done projects with very large companies that wanted to modify or even just kind of tweak their culture a little bit. And it took so much more energy to do that type of a change than any other change that I tried to make in any company ever. Wow. That's disheartening in a way. (laughs) It really is. It's, and it has to be in my experience, it has to be very top-down driven. Right. Because if the people at the top don't buy into it, it doesn't matter how much effort happens at the bottom levels. It's literally that very top level because they're the ones that ultimately make the choice financially, structurally, culturally about what they're going to put emphasis on. And until they do, all of the work that the people underneath do, honestly, it's it's something that in my experience and my belief is it is that it's almost impossible to do it in any other way. Wow. It kind of makes you realize why companies don't try that hard because it's such a difficult process. It really is. Yeah. It's a difficult process. And especially when you're talking about culture, there's no way, there's not a good way to incentivize it the way that we historically have incentivized any type of change. So by and large in the past, the way to incentivize change is based on how you compensate someone, right? which could be monetarily, it could be with days off, it could be with recognition. There's different ways to do that, but it has to be for the individual. But you can usually quantify what someone has done in order to give them that recognition or the compensation. When you're talking about culture, it is a very hard thing to document and recognize when somebody has done something to help the culture change. That's true. And I've seen a lot of different ways for people who are like, okay, write a card recognizing something that somebody did that falls in these particular values. But again, unless it starts at the top and the top people do that on an active and visible basis, 
the rest of the company isn't going to do it because they're going to see they're not doing it. They don't find it valuable. If I start putting my time against that, it just means I'm not doing something else and it's not going to work. Right. And I feel like a lot of companies don't even, and, and I'm speaking a little bit out of turn because I've, all I know is a few companies, but it seems like several of them don't even want to admit there's a problem. So that's the biggest problem. Is let's, let's pretend that there's not an issue Oh, and everything's fine. That is absolutely <laughs> true. There was one company I worked with, very large apparel and footwear manufacturer. And they had a history where they would do incredibly well and their sales would go up and everybody would be happy and there'd be these great raises and bonuses. And then all of a sudden it would die. And then another great increase and then another dip and up and down and up and down. And they couldn't figure out why they couldn't stay consistent. And somebody figured out that there the up times were when they had a particular product that just happened to hit in the marketplace. But when that product was no longer hot, then nothing else replaced it until they found that next big bump. But it was product specific, not brand or company specific. Okay. And so when I came in, I was talking with them about their strategy. And I asked around hundreds of employees. I was like, so what's the company strategy? What's your goal? What's your mission? And not one of them could articulate it. And so I went into a board meeting to talk about my findings. And I said, so I noticed when I talked to these people that there was no mission or vision or goal that they could clearly articulate. So can you tell me what it is? And not one person in the room, in the boardroom, all of the board members could articulate that. And I said, well, that's where the issue is because these people don't know how to make a decision on what to do because they have no idea where to go. And so they're just trying anything that's out there. And every once in a while, somebody gets lucky. And when they get lucky, they get like tons of recognition, lots of accolades. But the other people, when we're in the downside, they cut people right and left as quickly as possible. So everybody's living in this state of fear and they don't know what to do because they don't know where you want them to go. And they're just randomly guessing. Oh, wow. Now, they had a really hard time with what I told them. They did not particularly care for me saying to them. And at that point in time, I was in my early 30s coming in and talking to Actually, I think that was all men in the room, but me and all older than I was. And they did not appreciate me telling them that they did not have a strategy and they needed one. I'm sure. And I said, I'm not telling you don't. I'm just saying nobody seems to be able to articulate it. So until we can. And yeah, so they they did ask me to leave and they would discuss it. And I never heard back from them again. Oh, wow. <laughs> So very telling it is. And I could tell you the results after I left and I know what happened and they still have the same issue today. Wow. You made me think also, I, I have my MBA as well. And we had a project. I, I did it later in life, but we did a project and we called a very well-known company. I won't say the name. It, everybody would recognize it. Yeah. And we asked them if they knew what their mission and the vision of the company was. They had no clue what we were even talking about. We asked them if they knew who the CEO of their company was, whose that name is out there everywhere. And no one, and they would say, let me get my boss and then let me get my boss. And no one knew. And it was very shocking for such a large, prominent company. And I will tell you that the ones that actually can articulate their vision and have a really good connection with their leadership always end up tending to be much more successful than the ones that don't. I can believe that. Yeah. Because you have a purpose. Yeah. And I would say the same is true for individuals. So I had this really amazing discussion yesterday about being truly resilient and actually figuring out how to live your life 
in a more happy and purposeful way. And the gentleman that I were and I were talking about, we've do- both done a lot of research in this area, and we both kept talking about how you need to have a bigger purpose and almost your own personal mission of what you want to be and who you want to be. Because if you don't, and you set these random goals out there, like I'm going to run a marathon. Well, you might accomplish that, but then why? Were you doing that simply to check a box that you ran a marathon or were you doing it as a way to become an athlete or to be fit or to include exercise in your daily life? So maybe your mission or your vision is actually to be an athlete or somebody that is fit and will be able to play with their grandkids when they are 70 or 80 years old and have that be your driving force. And maybe the marathon happens to be one of the steps along that path to an ongoing journey. But if you have it be just this short-term goal of I'm going to get this job or I'm going to do this particular activity, it doesn't really help you focus on that long-term vision of where you want to get in your life. So just like the company is like all over the place, doing some things that work, some things that don't, if you don't do that for yourself, you're sort of doing these random things and it actually ends up making us much less happy because once that particular activity is gone, whether it's going back and getting a degree or doing some sort of physical activity or going and saying, I'm going to make sure that I get to Alaska. That's the trip that I'm going to have happen. Once it's over and that event's done, you don't have anything after it. So it's making that long-term vision that can help you be resilient and be happy because you know what you're focusing on is for the rest of your life and not just for the immediate foreseeable future. And that's a step to get to or through your life, but it's not something that will then end and you have to fill that gap. So that makes me want to ask you, like, I have a lot of people uh, that I've talked to on the show that say they've found their purpose in life or they're living their purpose and everybody's looking to try to find their purpose. So do we, in your opinion, do you feel like we all have a purpose and we have to discover it? Or is it something that we create ourselves? What's your belief on that? My belief on that is that we do all have a purpose and we have to find it. And I can remember when I was young that people would say to me, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I've heard that. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I worked every day of my life until I was at least 50 years old. And it wasn't that I was miserable, but it was work. I didn't love what I did and I couldn't understand what that really meant. And I didn't understand that concept until I went to grad school and I went when I was 51 and I had to write a thesis and it was daunting to me. I had no, I had been out of school for a long time, <laughs> 30 years. And I'm like, I haven't done this in forever. And so I sat down and I talked with my thesis advisor and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. And she said to me, you'll know what to write about when you find something that you cannot stop talking about. And I'm like, well, I talk a lot about my kids, but I don't think that's going to be a really good thesis. And so I just started thinking about what is it that I can't stop talking about. And it was finally understanding that we could be proactive in taking care of our mental health, both for ourselves, our children, and for everyone around us. And if somebody would have taught me the stuff that I learned in my 50s when I was a child, I would have had a much different life. But I also recognized that we didn't know all of that when I was a child. Right. And so I try to embody what Maya Angelou says, which is now that we know better, we can do better. 
And so in addition to my belief that we all have a purpose, I don't think we all find our purpose when we're 10 or 15 or 20. I think some of us find it later in life for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we need to go through a certain amount of things until it's, we live it and feel it and understand it. And some people are like Taylor Swift. I saw a thing with her today. She was interviewed by some national news organization when she was 15. And she made this, in my opinion, a very astute comment that her first album, was coming out and she's like, I have literally been living my entire life to get to this moment. I have known since I was born, this is what I wanted to do. And she's like, I know how fortunate that makes me because most people aren't, don't find that out that young. Some people, and she went up to a whole 25 years old. She was like, some people aren't 15, they're 20 or 25. And I know when you're 15, 25 seems really old, but there's people that I don't think really discover it until they are later in life. For me, it was in my fifties that I finally discovered what I'm passionate about. And I finally understood that if you do love what you do, if you do have passion around what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like I am going out and trying to help people. And it's something that I want to do. And so I don't mind putting in as much energy and as much time as it takes because it means something to me. Right. So yeah, I a hundred percent believe that it's out there. I think it just sometimes takes more time than Taylor Swift. That's a good way to put it. So I know you're a, a huge mental health advocate. So with the world being to me, the world is crazy right now mm-hmm. on all fronts. So I feel like that adds to people's level of can't handle one more thing or their aggression or their anger or their fear even. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that way? And what, in your opinion, what can they do to lower that? Like right now, I guess would be my question. So I absolutely think that I know the new pandemic is actually the mental health crisis that we're going through because we held it together through COVID and all of that craziness that was going on and our world politically and economically is in upheaval. Right. And so we're still having to deal with all of these external stresses. And what I want people to understand is that's not going to go away. You can't control it. Unfortunately, none of us have that ability. We can influence things but we can't control it. The only thing that we can control is ourselves and our reactions. Right. And so that's the first thing that I try to convey to people is just remember what you can control and try as much as possible to keep the other things outside of the stuff that you stress about. But the stuff that you can control, if you have had to suppress that, to learn how to safely express your emotions. And so I always say there's this three-step process. You have to find a safe time and a safe space to do some physical activity that releases your emotions. And it's not exercise. It is truly saying, how am I going to, what activity am I going to do that actually lets this stuff out? For me, it's actually a punching bag. I just bought one of those. (laughs) They're amazing. Oh, they are so good for your mental health. I have four kids and there's a couple of them that use it not infrequently. And, but you have to find that time to go to the punching bag. Right. And then in your mind, think about whatever it is that is upsetting you or annoying you or pissing you off or whatever it is. And as you're thinking about it, hit the bag. And you will find that in that you will expend so much more energy, so much quicker, and you will deplete your resources because thinking about it and connecting it with a physical movement will release the emotions, the weight that it carries on your body. It doesn't release the memory. You still know whatever it was happened, but it releases the hold that it has on your body. And it literally chemically 
it reduces the cortisol that your body has, which is your stress hormone. Oh, wow. And it increases the endorphins that your body has. And it's a different release than what exercise is. Because if you're just doing pure physical exercise, you don't release those cortisone or cortisol hormones the way that you do if you are doing the emotional release, because you have to connect the two. So that's connecting your thoughts or what's angering you to that action is what does it? Yes. Okay. Yep. I didn't realize. In fact, the other one that I've recommended to a lot of people, and I know a large number of people that have taken me up on this is to chop wood. Oh, wow. And a lot of people have bought axes. You can do it without an ax. You can do it with a bat, but basically it's that chopping action and getting something out. And the way that I recommend as I'm educating people on how to do this is to say, come up with a phrase that embodies whatever was happening that is angering you. And the example that I give in when I was going through my divorce, and I will keep it PG, I would yell, you stupid jerk. Other words were chosen, but we can go with that. And I would hit the bag. And as I was hitting it and I was saying those words over and over again, it released it. Wow. And I could feel it literally coming out of my body. And then there were other things that had happened that I needed to release. And so I had different things that I would say, but it encapsulated whatever that particular event was and let me release that out. The same is true for sadness, because I find that people, they might cry a little bit, but they keep it contained. They don't really let the tears out. And I give the example of a friend of mine, he passed away a few months ago. He was 52 and he left behind. I'm sorry. Thank you. Two children, a 13 year old and a almost 10 year old. The 10 year old, his birthday was the day after his father's funeral. Oh my, sad. And both the kids got up at the funeral and spoke and they did so incredibly eloquently and they didn't cry. And after the ceremony, almost every single person that was there went and congratulated the kids on what an amazing job they did at their speaking at their father's funeral. Wow. And those kids were told over and over again, good job, not crying at your dad's funeral. And it hurts me still to this day right? because your dad died. You should cry. Exactly. And that's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. But as a society, we literally commended them on their ability to not show emotion at something that should be one of the most emotional days in their entire life. Now, I happen to know their mom very well. And I know she talked to them about how to express their emotions because I talked with her about it. Right. And she was like, oh, no, we've got it. No problem. Like they knew they were trying to do it for that event. They know that they could then go talk to somebody and that they could let their emotions out. And so they have expressed it, but it was watching our society reward people suppressing those emotions. And so I've talked with a lot of people about that is another connection you need to make is releasing that sadness. And I, in my book, I talk about it and I had this 55 year old man reach out to me who had read my book and he said, thank you for giving me permission to cry. Oh, wow. And so I responded back and I was like, I'm so glad that I did. Can you tell me what happened? And he had been through a lot of things in his life and he had never once cried. And after he read that part of the book, he said, I just decided to sit down in my chair in my living room and cry. And he said, four and a half hours later, wow, I was done crying. And he's like, I cannot tell you, I didn't realize how much I had kept inside me. And he was like, and it dramatically changed just simply how I felt. It didn't change my situation. It didn't change the fact that those things had happened to me, but it changed how I felt inside. I had released so much of what had built up for 55 years. Wow. 
And I now happen to know his children. And one of them said, we've never seen him cry. Like he's never cried. No, that's my dad doesn't cry. And it's okay to cry. I was going to say, I, I think our society is horrible about telling boys and men, especially to suppress all their emotions. Yep. And then we wonder why our spouses can't show emotion or male spouses. It's true. Yeah. It's just horrible. It really is. It's horrible. So yeah, so absolutely. As a society, we do it. And so that's, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get people to do is to say, find whatever works for you. Cause I don't think it's a one size fits all. Some people boxing might work. Some people, the acts crying. I have one child. I love them dearly. Their way of expressing anger is taking a pillow and throwing it on the ground. I find that wholly unsatisfactory and I don't understand how it works for them, but I don't, I don't judge it. I'm just like, yep, yeah, if it works for you, it works for you. There's a million ways to express it, but it's the physical connection to the emotion. And for them, they don't want anybody in the house knowing when they're needing to have a little release. Okay. And so throwing the pillow, it keeps it in their own world. And I'm like, that's fine. I don't care if you're down here hitting the punching bag. My house is not that big. You're going to hear somebody hitting the punching bag, right? But it's, you just have to find out what works for you, but doing it in a safe time and a safe space, because you're gonna, like you said, at work, you can't do it at work. You can't get mad at somebody and hit them in the face at work. You might want to, but you can't do it. Well, you could, but there's lots of legal things with it and it's not worth it. Yeah. There's a lot of ramifications if you do that. (laughs) Exactly. So, because that's not the safe time or safe space, keep it in and that's okay. And then find that safe time and safe space to let it out. Can can that work in non-physical or less physical ways too? Like I have a child that loves to go to painting and art and some something creative. Yes. And that's how she does hers. Yeah. Yes. I have um, a couple of friends that do crafting. Okay. And they, when they get into it, they actually like not sculpting, but um, clay pottery, doing pottery because they're doing something where they can think about it and get it out in that motion. Right. I've never had anybody do painting or drawing with an angry release. I've had a lot of people do artwork, that type of artwork um, when they're sad. Okay. And that's a really good way for them to get it out. I also have one friend who is a professional dancer and she dances out her emotions. And honestly, it's beautiful. And I wish I had her ability and her coordination because I'm not even as good as Elaine is from Seinfeld. I'm in that same boat. (laughs) Right. It's like, I watch her. I'm like, oh, look at you. You look so pretty. That's, I love that for you. And I wish I'm just jealous and that's okay. So yeah, so there's, again, and I list out a whole bunch of different options for people in the book. Okay. And actually, if you go to my website, there's, it's also listed there of here's probably 25 or 30 different ways you can do it. It does like, and there's a million more. I am sure that I have not covered all of them. So if that's what works for you, you just have to find what works for you in a safe time and a safe space and put those three together and do it on a consistent basis. Okay. So don't let things pile up because that's when you get those explosions. If you can do it before then and do it for those little things, you don't have the explosions anymore because nothing's weighing you down. You can take on a lot more and that's how you actually become truly resilient because you're not carrying around the weight of the world. You've set it down periodically. And so then you can keep going and you're going to kind of go up and down and take on new things and then set it down and take something else and set it down. That's awesome. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. So tell us about your book, what it's called and where people can find it. Sure. It's called Stop the Break. It's on any online retailer. Just Google Stop the Break or Janet Barrett and it will come up. And basically the premise of it is we let people break before we give them mental health help. 
So let's stop doing that. Let's stop people from breaking and give them ways to deal with their mental health earlier in life and before they have to run to a therapist or to a doctor or to everything like I did and be able to prevent all of those things building up and having the explosions that we've been having and continue to have and will continue to have because the rest of the world isn't going to change. We can only change ourselves. And that's what I want people to be able to do. And so in the book, I tell a little bit more of my story at the beginning so that one, people can know they're not alone right? and that it's, they're not the only one to have gone through things. And their story may not be anything like mine, but we all go through things. And so no matter what you've been through, one, you're not alone. And two, there's things you can do and you don't have to rely on anybody out there to do it for you. If you aren't comfortable talking with somebody, I give ways where you don't ever have to engage with anyone else and let them know you need any help whatsoever. Wow. If you do want it, there's other ways you can do it and use other resources. But because there's such a stigma on asking for mental health help, let's go with that. That's okay. If you don't want to ask for help, let me give you tools that you can use. So those are all in the book, kind of in the middle. And then the end is talking about how we as a society could actually change and improve so we can get rid of that stigma. That's wonderful. And you also help businesses, correct? You go into businesses and try to help them help their people. I do. Yes. Yes. Um, I actually uh, just started a partnership with uh, a company called Resilience Builder, and they have created a survey that will identify where you are on the resilience scale. And there's five sub parts of that. And we can basically say exactly where you need help in those five parts. If it's physical, if it's mental, if it's having a goal, if it's all of these different things, and then how can you actually use that data to give you a plan? And so going in and helping organizations understand where are their employees? Because if they're all maxed out and they're all burned out and they're all stressed out, guess what? You're not getting good work. Right. And you need to help them identify how they can actually improve. And so I've partnered with them to be able to take this to additional companies and help them really learn about how can you help your employees be resilient. But the big key is let the employees take the ownership of that because it needs to come from them and their willingness to implement change in their lives, as opposed to the company saying, fill out this form, do these things, because then it's really not going to impact um, anybody and help them become more truly resilient. They're going to be resentful because they're being asked to do even more at, at work and it's not helping them. And it's just delaying them getting that email sent. Right. And then they're just checking a box, just like the company does sometimes. Exactly. Yep. So is there anything else uh, that you want to make sure our listeners hear that we haven't already talked about? I want them to know that I am here for them. They are not alone. If they need help to reach out to somebody. And you can go to my website, which is Janet-Barrett.com. And you can contact me directly. If you need help, reach out because there is somebody there and I am someone that will help you if you need it, because I do care. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Are you on social media or anywhere else that they can find you or follow you or? So if you go to Janet-Barrett.com, you can get all of the links there. I find it's easier to just say go there and then you can click on whichever social media you like to follow. And I am on everything but X. I'm not on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it. Um, I just, I never joined. And uh, quite frankly, I think I'm getting too old to try and learn new things (laughs) (laughs) or too lazy. One of the two. (laughs) Yeah. Or there's just, it just gets overwhelming. There's so much everywhere. It does. Yeah. I had to basically curtail the number of things I was doing. And so that was one that I just, I couldn't take the time to try and figure out and learn. 
Well, I, I thank you for your time and for sharing your wisdom and for everything that you're doing to help people. <clears throat> you have a beautiful mission. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you. And thank you for hosting this podcast because I know it helps a lot of people and I greatly appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, thank you. And I, like I said, I appreciate you being here and I've enjoyed our discussion. So absolutely. Well, I hope you have a good rest of the day and I hope your listeners, wherever they are, have great days as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. As we wrap up today's episode, I hope Janet sharing her journey, experience, and wisdom has helped you in some way. The main takeaway for me is that I really hadn't thought about what suppressing our emotions, especially over years and years, can do to us, and that it actually separates the functions of the mind and the body, and that our bodies hold this emotion, which for many of us can lead to physical ailments down the road. I love that Janet wants to spread the word on things like tapping, EMDR, dance therapy, boxing, etc. Things that can help us reconnect our minds to our bodies. I also love that she wants people to know that they're not alone in this and she even makes herself directly available for anyone who needs her as well. So what stood out to you? I would love to hear from you. As always, I hope this episode helps at least one person. And with that, I hope you have a blessed week, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Beauty in the Mess. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas you would like to hear about, or you think you would be a great guest on the show, you can reach me directly at thebeautyinthemess.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>